Well, good morning. <clears throat> My name is Ryan Dennis. For those of you I haven't met, we're going to be looking at Psalm 37 in just a moment. Uh, but when my wife Stephanie and I first got married, we were relatively young, at least according to modern American standards. Uh, so I think I was 20 when we first got engaged, 21 when we got married, and then 22 when we had our first child. Uh, so we were young, we were totally in love, we were a little bit naive, and we were completely broke. We had no money. Uh, so we both wanted Stephanie to be able to stay home with our kids. So I was the sole provider of our family of three making $10 an hour. And I know I'm getting older, but this wasn't the 1950s. This was around 2010. Uh, and $10 an hour didn't go very far. And my last semester of college, I was working full-time, going to school full-time, just trying to desperately graduate college, because that was the finish line. It's once I graduate, I'll be able to get that good job. That'll be the end of our financial woes. Everything will be all right. But so you can imagine my disappointment uh, when that day comes, I graduate, and I can't find a job. And a year passes, and I still didn't find that amazing job that I was promised in high school. If I just went to college, I would, I would find. Uh, so those were times of struggle in, in some ways. But if, if I could go back in time, I still wouldn't change a thing of how it worked out and the way God used those seasons to form us, to uh, cause us to learn to pray and trust and depend upon him in ways we never had to up to that point. And honestly, they were still, even though we had no money, they were still very joyful times overall. But there were moments of real struggle and real questions as to why this was how things are playing out. Why, God, why we're trying to live our lives in the way that you say please you. So why are we living like this? Why is this how things are playing out for us? Why in the world am I getting turned down by job after job after job? I know I'm a little awkward and a little anxious in these interviews, but I don't think I'm that unlikable, right? I mean, what's going on here? And not just that, but why are these people around me all seem to be prospering? Why is that guy getting that new job? Do you know what that guy is like? Hey, you know, why don't I get that job? Or why are they going on these amazing vacations while I try to figure out how we can pay rent, right? Is this going to be like this forever? But at that time, we were part of a, a small church plant. And I'll still remember this email that one of the leaders of that church sent me that was just super encouraging, super strengthening to my own faith. And I, I don't remember much of what he actually said, but I can still remember the gist of it. And more importantly, I remember the scriptures that he pointed me to. And those scriptures were in Psalm 37, which we're going to look at this morning. And I think you'll see why as we read through this passage together, I think you'll see why this was so encouraging. So turn there in your Bible. It's on page 490 in the, if you want to use the pew Bible in front of you. And I know it's a longer Psalm. It's a longer passage, but try to stick with me and follow along as I read it now. Psalm 37 of David. Do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong, for they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act, making your righteousness shine like the dawn your justice like the noonday. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. 
Do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way, by the person who carries out evil plans. Refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm. For evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked person will be no more. Though you look for him, he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will enjoy abundant prosperity. The wicked person schemes against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. The Lord laughs at him because he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and strung the bow to bring down the poor and needy and to slaughter those whose way is upright. Their swords will enter their own hearts and their bows will be broken. The little that the righteous person has is better than the abundance of many wicked people. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord supports the righteous. The Lord watches over the blameless all their days, and their inheritance will last forever. They will not be disgraced in times of adversity. They will be satisfied in days of hunger. But the wicked will perish. The Lord's enemies, like the glory of the pastures, will fade away. They will fade away like smoke. The wicked person borrows and does not repay, but the righteous one is gracious and giving. Those who are blessed by the Lord will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be destroyed. A person's steps are established by the Lord, and he takes pleasure in his way. Though he falls, he will not be overwhelmed because the Lord supports him with his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous abandoned or his children begging for bread. He is always generous, always lending, and his children are a blessing. Turn away from evil and do what is good and settle permanently. For the Lord loves justice and will not abandon his faithful ones. They are kept safe forever, but the children of the wicked will be destroyed. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it permanently. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. His tongue speaks what is just. The instruction of his God is in his heart. His steps do not falter. The wicked one lies in wait for the righteous and intends to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in the power of the wicked one or allow him to be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will watch when the wicked are destroyed. I have seen a wicked, violent person well-rooted like a flourishing native tree. Then I passed by and noticed he was gone. I searched for him, but he could not be found. Watch the blameless and observe the upright, for the person of peace will have a future, but transgressors will all be eliminated. The future of the wicked will be destroyed. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord their refuge in a time of distress. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He will deliver them from the wicked and will save them because they take refuge in him. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. So to start out, I want to make just kind of some general, quick, high-level comments about this text. So Psalm 37 is considered a wisdom psalm. And if you're familiar with the Bible, Uh, you probably notice it seems a lot more like a chapter of Proverbs than it does kind of your standard typical psalm. It isn't a single prayer in this psalm. It's David teaching wisdom about the Lord and following him. We should also remember that as a psalm, uh, that this is poetry. It's not an essay. It's more more like uh, your favorite song than it is uh, like a thesis paper. It's not a a kind of well-written, argued, structured, logical argument that's building upon one another. Uh, But it's more like a collection of proverbs 
that have been creatively arranged that are all dealing with this same topic. And it's actually written, uh, your Bible might have a note, that it's actually written as an acrostic poem in Hebrew. So as you look at each standard of each stanza in your Bible, uh, it obviously it's written in English, not Hebrew, so you won't see the acrostic form of the poem. Uh, but each stanza begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet with some intentional imperfections like most of David's uh, acrostic psalms. So as I mentioned, it's a creative, poetic arrangement of these divine things that are all dealing with the same subject. And you probably noticed as it kind of hovered around this and, and phrased it in different ways. But namely, it addresses a problem, which is the problem of the prospering of the wicked and the afflictions of the righteous that often occur in this life. So, so why is it that the wicked often, often prosper while the righteous often suffer in our world? And as we'll see, he doesn't answer that specific question directly, and, and that's really because it's the wrong question in many ways. We're not, uh, we, we, we are not given all the ins and outs of the mystery of God's divine providence. We are not given those answers. But what he does give us is something far more useful and helpful for us in living our lives in this world. He gives us instruction, and he's also going to give us uh, much perspective on this situation. So he gives us instruction on how we should respond to this situation, and he gives us some perspective on how we should understand what's truly at work and going on in our world. And really, his main aim in the end is to assure those who love God that they are on the right path. Regardless of how things seem, regardless of how things go for you, go for other people, if you are following the Lord, you are on the best and right path. That's the main idea he wants to get across. That's the main idea you'll see in your bulletin is this, that he wants to communicate. Trust in the Lord and keep his way. Because regardless of who seems to prosper in the moment, that is the path to true prospering both now and for all eternity. And we'll unpack that as we go. So we'll start out this morning looking at how we should respond in this situation. So David begins in verse 1 with the words, Do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong. He then states it again in verse 7. Do not be agitated by the one who prospers in his way, by the person who carries out his evil plans. So he starts with the negative. Don't do this. Don't be agitated, or as some of your translations might say, fret not, do not worry. In other words, don't be all worked up about what you see occurring for the evildoer. Verse 8 goes even further, refrain from your anger and give up your rage. Now, why might we respond to this type of situation with worry, fretting, anger? Well, I think there's a few reasons. There's probably many, but I'll, I'll cite a few. The first reason is really just the seeming injustice of the whole matter, right? So but why should those who take advantage of others be the ones who rise to the top? Why should those who are most self-absorbed be those who are most celebrated and most popular? Why, why should those who do the least good for other people be those who seem to get the most good for themselves so often? Another reason is that very often the prospering of the wicked leads to negative consequences for the righteous and really for all people. And certainly you felt this at one time 
uh, or another in your life, whether it be in the workplace under a new boss or an executive who doesn't care anything for those who are below him, right? Or, or perhaps it's, a, uh, it's politicians pushing legislation that serves their party's agendas but goes against your beliefs or forces you to do something that's against your conscience, or perhaps it's the media pushing whatever new cultural trend uh, is, is out for being pushed, and anyone who disagrees is, is demonized and, and put in this awful light. There's many ways that the prospering of the wicked leads to negative consequences for the righteous. But I think one, one more thing that David is really getting at here, the next reason he mentions in the very next line, do not envy those who do wrong. So sometimes we're agitated, not because of the injustice, because, but because if we're honest, we're actually jealous of the success itself. So we wanted that promotion and the financial stability it would have brought us. We want to be at center stage, actually, and have the admiration of our peers. We want to have our party to be in power so we can push what we think is best and have that sense of control. So we want this or that blessing for our own. But David assures us, and what he's going to show us again and again throughout this psalm, is that there is absolutely no reason for the righteous person to be agitated or envious in any way. And he begins that point by with a picture, a simple and yet powerful image in the next verse. So verse 2, For they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrased this in the, in the message. He says, in no time they'll shrivel like grass clippings and wilt like cut flowers under the sun. So you can picture that. The grass was just cut. You have the, the it's temporarily green sitting on top of the lawn, right? And then it slowly turns to brown or quickly. And the next moment you look outside again and there's no grass. It just miraculously disappeared, right? You don't know where it went. It just dissolved that quickly. It's gone forever. Or your little girl sees this flower that she's so excited about and wants you to look at this beautiful flower as well. So what does she do? She picks it and brings it to you to see and behold the beauty. And within hours, it looks awful, right? It's, it's wilting, it's dying, it's, it's nothing to look at. So you see the point that David is making. All of their prosperity is so short-lived. It looks great for this tiny tiny moment, but it's a moment that's so short that it's almost meaningless in the grand scheme of things. Meaningless if that moment didn't have eternal consequences, right? So there's nothing to get worked up about, nothing to envy. Instead, what does he tell us to do? Well, verse three, he says, trust in the Lord and do what is good. So as David begins his positive instruction, as he's telling us how to respond, he begins where, as Christians, we might guess he would respond, with trust in the Lord or faith in the Lord. And that's because the Christian life, again and again, is simply a life of trusting the Lord. From start to finish, we, it first began when we trusted in the Lord Jesus uh, for, for the forgiveness of our sins, for, by his blood that we shed on the cross. We trusted in him to be our Savior, and we were brought into his kingdom and born again. And it continues daily, moment by moment, as we trust in him and depend on him over and over and over again. And again and again, the Christian life really comes down to this simple question. In all the different circumstances we face and all the different trials we face, it comes down to this question. Will you believe what God has said or will you listen to other voices? 
Will you believe and trust in what God has said about you, about the world, about your situation, or will you listen to other voices? And another way to put it is, will you depend and rely on the Lord, or will you look elsewhere for that help, that strength, whatever it might be? And again and again, that's what it comes down to. Who are we trusting? Who are we relying on each day? And David's going to give us lots of helpful information throughout the psalm, lots of instruction to help us on how to respond, how we should understand the situation, but it'll do little good apart from faith, right? It'll do little good apart from trusting in it and relying on it as true, not just this morning, but day by day, right? We need to again and again trust in the Lord, trust in his promises. And that's because faith is always the cure for fretting. Faith is always the cure for our despondency and our, our despair, And it's the eternal perspective that we'll see throughout this psalm that is the cure for the envious perspective we're often tempted to have. So we must trust in the Lord. So that's the kind of first inward component. But in that same verse, he also tells us the outward side of this is to do good. He says, do what is good. So good works, good attitudes, good endeavors, good intentions always flow from a heart of faith. It's the natural outworking of a heart that is truly trusting in the Lord is to then do what is good. That's what flows out. So he tells us, he says, just keep on, keep it on, keep keep doing the right thing. Trust the Lord with the outcomes. Don't worry about what's going on around you. And in the end, you will prosper in the end, as we will see by God's definition and in God's timing. The next thing he says in verse four is, take the light in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Now, this idea might sound strange to you. We, you know, we might, okay, I get belief, I get trusting, but delighting in God, enjoying God, finding pleasure in God, that almost seems like a, a strange way to view God. But as strange as it might seem to one who doesn't know the Lord or, or to one who religion is just mere formalities, the Christian knows that the greatest joys in the world are found in the Lord. David himself was, was fully convinced of this, which is why he gives us the, this command in the first place. And it's all throughout the Psalms. Just two quick examples. Psalm 27, he wrote, one, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. In Psalm 84, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. David's chief desire, the one thing he wanted as he seeks the Lord that he's praying for, is that he can just be in the presence of God, that he can gaze upon God and behold his beauty. That that, from David's own experience, he knew that's where the best joys, the best delights in the world are. And there's nothing that competes with that even in the slightest. So he tells us to do the same. Seek after that one thing. Take delight in the Lord. So how do we do that? Well, If you want a more thorough explanation, you can read a book by John Piper. He has written many on this topic. But I'll give a very simplistic uh, explanation right now. And really, and that just is going after our own experience and life in general. So really, I think the way that we delight in the Lord is the way that we delight in just about everything else and, and any other person. So what do you do with your favorite people in the world? I'm assuming you have your favorite people. I have my favorite people. Well, for starters, you spend time together, right? I mean, that's, that's step one, right? You spend time together. And that's really the heart of the whole relationship 
is just being together and enjoying one another's company and having conversations and doing things together. That's a, that's a the, probably the central part of the delight is enjoying one another personally. Another thing you do is when you are not with that person, you probably think about that person, right? You think about things that you did together, get together or things that were said or funny things that happen. And then the last part, last thing I think you do always is you also talk about that person, right? You recount those funny stories or that trip you went on together or that experience you had this or there. So you, so you spend time together, you think about those experiences, and then you talk about those experiences with others. And I think that's really what it comes down to in its most simplistic form with delighting in the Lord as well. We spend time with him in his word, in prayer, as a church family. We think about him often. We, our mind goes back to him throughout our days, remembering scriptures that we read that morning or thinking on uh, just whatever it might be, pondering his goodness, pondering his glory, turning our gaze upon Jesus once more. And then the natural overflow of that is talking to him about talking about him to others. It's praise. We always praise the things that we enjoy. That's the overflow of of enjoyment is praise, talking about the things that we love and find enjoyment in. And so we praise him. Praise is the overflow of a heart delighting in God. And as we delight in the Lord as such, the the, the meaning of the second part of the verse uh, becomes more clear in terms of what David's getting out getting at. He will give you your heart's desires. So he isn't saying that, you know, if you uh, give God a little lip service, if you come to church, if you act like you like him, he's going to give you everything you want. I I can't make that promise to you. I'm sorry. Uh, He's not promising you that new boat, that new car, that new job, that new whatever. That's not uh, what David is getting at here. Rather, the heart that is truly delighting in the Lord is going to be influenced and shaped by that delight. When you delight in something, you are shaped and your desires are then shaped by that delight. So many of these desires that are shaped by this delight in God will, of course, be satisfied in God himself, as so many of our desires can be satisfied nowhere else but in God alone. So he will give us our heart's desires but also, we might have a desire for all sorts of things, as we do, and increasingly, they, be, they will be shaped in accordance with God's will. So as we delight in Him, the desires of our heart can be more and more trusted and are more and more going to be granted and given. And there's much more that could be said on that, but as we have, uh, we're only four verses in, I need to keep moving. And, and his point is this, I'll wrap up this point. It, 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 he's saying, don't waste your time envying what the wicked enjoy. Don't waste your time thinking you are missing out on anything. You have something incomparably better in the Lord. So take delight in him. You will be truly satisfied. You have absolutely nothing to envy others for. So he continues on then in verse five, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. A a more literal uh, translation of, of that verse would be roll your way upon the Lord. Roll your way. It's this image of rolling. Uh, it's an image of rolling your life, your burdens, your circumstances off of your shoulders and rolling it onto God's instead. It's to, it's to commit or entrust this day, this situation, this person, this problem, this whatever into the hands of 
the Lord. It's similar to what Peter says in uh, 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And this goes far beyond just the, what you might consider the religious, spiritual aspects of our life, but this is all of life. We are invited to cast our burdens on him, to roll our way upon the shoulders of the Lord. This is the ordinary anxieties of the day. This is the ordinary troubles from day to day. We're invited, commanded to commit our way to the Lord, to cast our cares on him. So what situations do you need to roll off your shoulders and roll onto the Lord's? What cares, what burdens are are, are weighing you down and need to be just handed over to the Lord? Because he is the only one who can bear those burdens. He is the only one who can support our lives truly as we go through trial after trial in different circumstances. So he invites us, he commands us to again and again, roll our way, roll our burdens onto his shoulders because we can't carry them on our own. And he says, trust in him, he will act. But when you, when you do this, when you commit your uh, problem, circumstance, whatever it might be, when you take it off of your plate and put it on someone else's, uh, what do you typically have to do then? You have to wait, right? And, and that's where he goes next in verse seven. He says, be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. And something similar in verse 34, he says, wait for the Lord and keep, the, keep his way. And this is always the case. When you hand uh, your problems to somebody else to handle for you, you are then at their mercy uh, to do it when they do it, right? Uh, so if I have an issue with my car, Unless it's something super simple, change a battery, something very simple like that, unless it's like that, I'm just going straight to a mechanic. I'm not even going to try. Nobody wants me to try. It's going to end badly. Um, so I take that to that person. I take it to the mechanic. I hand it off. I'm glad that burden's off my shoulders and someone who knows what they're doing is going to take a look at it. But then what do I do? I have to wait, right? I, I hope it's only a few hours. It could be a few days. I hope not. I'm hoping they can actually fix it. Uh, that's, that's what it really comes down to. But I have to wait. I'm at, I'm at the mercy of another to handle the situation. And it's the same way with God, right? We, we, have, we hand our struggles over to him. We hand our burdens over to him. And then we have to wait, right? We have to wait. And sometimes that might be quick. It might be, uh, we might see resolution quickly. Other times it might be years. Other, might, other times it might be when we get to glory, Right? It's in his timing. But when we hand our burdens and concerns over to the Lord, we know where we're placing them, right? We know we're placing them in the hands of infinite love and power and wisdom. You know, there's no better place to bring our concerns, to bring our struggles, to bring our, our, you know, our deepest fears than to entrust them with the Lord. He alone can bear the burden. He alone is trustworthy and able to sustain us in all things. And one thing we'll find, of course, as we wait, is you typically have to keep rolling the burden back onto the Lord, right? Because as you wait, uh, you start to feel the burden of it again. You start to take it on yourself again. You start to struggle again and worry again. So what you find yourself needing to do is again and again, taking the burden off our own shoulders and saying, Lord, this is yours. I trust you. I can't handle this, but I'm, I'm committing this to you and I trust you with it, Lord. So wait for the Lord and keep his way. So that's the kind of the first section is just seeing David's giving us instruction on how to respond to the situation. And really the rest of the psalm, for the most part, 
He's been giving instruction on, on just how to understand, how to think rightly about this situation. And, and he's going to mostly compare and contrast the wicked and the righteous in different ways uh, to really drive home his case. So we obviously don't have time to look at every verse in detail, but I want to give some key themes that are repeated throughout this psalm again and again uh, that I really think are the main points that he's getting at. The first and perhaps most important is this, that the wicked will be destroyed, but the righteous will receive a beautiful inheritance from the Lord. This is, then this, this, he states this again and again. So it's first hinted at in verse 2, but stated clearly in verse 9, he says, For evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Verse 10 and 11, A little while, and the wicked person will be no more, but the humble will inherit the land. Verse 22, Those who are blessed by the Lord will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be destroyed. Verse 29, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it permanently. Verse 34, he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will watch when the wicked are destroyed. Verse 38, the future of the wicked will be destroyed. Do you think that's something important that we should remember? (laughs) He says it again and again and again throughout this psalm. It's vital. It's only a proper view and understanding of the future that will enable you to live wisely in the present. It's only a right view of the future and what's to come that will help us to live rightly and think correctly about the present. So if you are fretting over the wicked, or if you are envious of those who are living contrary to God's word, or if you are frustrated with God and feel like he's giving you kind of the raw end of the deal, and and, and at least in comparison to how you see him dealing with other people, it's very likely the reason you feel those things and think those things is because your timeline is too short. Your timeline is too short. You, you see this tiny moment, and that's it. Your perspective is too small. And how something ends is typically how you determine if it was good, if it was worthwhile, if it was something you should envy and, and want for yourself or not. And, and to use a recent illustration, uh, you can think of just the recent tragedy with the submarine, right? That I'm sure many of you uh, like my wife, we're constantly checking the news for updates and trying to see what was happening with it. Uh, but the submarine, I'm, I'm assuming all of you know the story, but that imploded. It was on its way to visit, uh, to see the Titanic ruins and imploded at some point. Now, I would be too scared to ever even attempt something like that. I would be, I'm claustrophobic. I would not want to go in a submarine to begin with. But some of you who are more adventurous might envy that. You might think, man, I wish I could go see the Titanic. Uh, I don't know why. That's crazy. But some of you might. Some of you might. And you might envy those who have the means to be able to go down and view such a thing and go on such a trip like that. But not if you knew how this trip was going to end, right? Knowing the ending, you're like, no, no, I would never want. Obviously, that would be a foolish decision. I would never do that. These people didn't know, right? They had no idea. They assumed it would be a safe trip. But knowing the end shapes how you understand and view the present. And as Christians, we are privileged to have a view into the future and things of eternity. In the same way, you know, we should not envy the wicked, but weep for them, right? We, we know what's to come, and we should plead with them about this certain future that again and again is clearly laid out in Scripture of destruction, eternal destruction. And the righteous will inherit the land. And, and I'm, some of you might be wondering, you know, what is all this about inheriting the land? Why is that 
such a good thing to have land. Uh, I, do, I do enjoy having land, but this is speaking of something far greater than a little plot of, of land. The land was the symbol for the people of Israel uh, of the blessing and promises of God. So this was the land that was first promised uh, to Abraham. It was then God brought the people of Israel into it when he brought them out of Egypt. And to dwell in the land was just to dwell in the land of blessing and promise. It was to be in the presence of God with the people of God, enjoying the favor of God. And really, the land was the symbol of everything that made them unique as a people. It was the presence of God in their midst and them enjoying and living under his care, his protection, and by his promises. And for the Christian, we have the same essential promise, uh, but it has expanded and it has grown. Uh, if you were to look at the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 5, 5, he restates the same principle as it relates to his kingdom. And he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So it's not land as in the borders of Israel. He, he's talking now about the entire earth, everything. That is the scope of Christ's kingdom. And that is the scope of the promised land for the Christian. And there's really no greater uh, description of what this land, this inheritance, this new earth is like than in found in Revelation 21 and that vision that the Apostle John had. I'll read just a few words from it. He says this, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor for the former things have passed away. That is the inheritance of the Christian. That is what is coming for every believer. A new heaven and a new earth where the God that you right now trust in and delight in by faith will be in the midst, uh, will be in our midst in a way that our hearts can't even begin to fathom right now, can't even begin to imagine. He will dwell with them. God himself will be with them as their God. And I know no sweeter words that could be spoken of this inheritance, no better promise than that God will be there dwelling with his people in this kind of way. And if we could only get a small glimpse of what that would be like, you would never envy anything the rest of your life. You would never begrudge any pleasure that God withholds or any blessing that God withholds this life in this lifetime if you could but see the glory of what it's going to be like when we behold his face for the first time. It will be marvelous. So you have an inheritance, a life coming that cannot be compared with anything in this world. And that alone is reason enough, but he tells us more. The next reason kind of in this, in this section that he tells us is that until that day comes, the wicked will scheme and plot and attack, but the righteous are kept safe and are upheld by the Lord. So verse 12, you see this several places, but verse 12, the wicked person schemes against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. Verse 14, the wicked have drawn the sword and strung the bow to bring down the poor and needy and to slaughter those whose way is upright. Verse 32, the wicked one lies in wait for the righteous and intends to kill him. Now, if you know much about the life of David, 
you know that for him, these weren't just uh, nice metaphors, right? This was his actual life, was uh, all throughout at different points, people trying to kill him, whether it was his enemy armies or whether it was those who should have been on his side, like uh, Saul or even his own son, Absalom. Uh, So he had real enemies. And while there's Christians all over the world who do face enemies that extreme, uh, I'm guessing for most of us in this room, we probably experienced something a lot more mild, right? And I don't think any of our lives are in danger on a day-to-day basis. But we do have those who hate what we believe and seek to destroy it, right? We're still, we know we have an enemy in the devil uh, who seeks nothing more than our harm and our destruction. One who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we do have real enemies, real threats to our to our faith, to our our loved ones, to the church, to everything we hold most dear. So what assurance do we find in this psalm for that? Well, first, since we are entrusting our souls to God, it makes sense that we should then look to God and see what he thinks of these threats, right? Let's let's look to him. Since we're trusting in him with this battle, uh, let's see how he views it. Well, verse verse 13 gives us the answer. The Lord laughs at him. The Lord just laughs. It's a joke, right? He is, there's no concern whatsoever. Any of the attacks, anything that tries to stand against God is a joke. Compared to his power, compared to his wisdom, nothing in the world compares. He knows how it all ends. So it's a joke to think that the wicked or even the devil himself would have any chance whatsoever at, at thwarting God's plans. Not only that, but verse 15, their swords will enter their own hearts and their bows will be broken. So the attempts will not only fail, but they will end in their own harm who seek to inflict harm and their own causes will collapse. So again and again, the way this psalm pictures uh, the, uh, the, how God, if God is for us, to put in the words of, of Paul, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? It, it does not matter. It, it does not matter. Verse 17 assures us further, the Lord supports the righteous. Verse 28, he will not abandon his faithful ones. They're kept safe forever. Verse 33, the Lord will not leave him in the power of the wicked one or allow him to be condemned when he is judged. So despite all the schemes, all the plans, all the attacks of the wicked who seek to intend intend harm, the Christian will not be overcome because the Lord will obviously not be overcome, right? The battle belongs to him, and because it belongs to him, we are safe and we are secure until we reach glory. And there are times when it may even look like defeat, right? It, It may look bleak. It may look like things aren't falling out how they should. Not unlike if you think of the Lord Jesus, who was condemned, though innocent, who was abandoned at the cross, who was seemingly in the power of the wicked one and dies, he died on the cross and as he was buried. But in three days, right, he rose victoriously from the grave to rule and reign forevermore. And we see him vindicated and we see the power of God at work and we see God's kingdom now growing and expanding and and changing the world. So vindication and rescue always come in the end for those who trust in the Lord. The third reason that we see is that the wicked may appear to have an abundance in the moment, but even now the the life of the righteous is better. It's better because of the Lord. So verse 16 says, the little that the righteous person has is better than the abundance of many wicked people. Case closed, right? That's really all we need. It says it plainly. But it's demonstrated again and again all throughout this psalm. So the wicked person has an abundance, 
and it's never enough. While the righteous person may have very little, and it always is enough. Verses 18 through 20, we see that the righteous who have little are not disgraced when they find themselves in hard times. They're not going hungry if there's a famine in the land. While the wicked who do not have that same hope, who have an abundance, somehow perish, right? They don't make it through. Verse 21, the wicked one borrows and does not repay, either because he can't or because he doesn't want to, whatever it might be. But surprisingly, it's the righteous person who has little, who is gracious and giving. He is generous and he finds ways to bless others, even if he has little means. That is how the righteous uh, go. And again and again, the righteous person is depicted as the one who is established by the Lord, while the wicked are those who could fall at any moment. No stability. And you can see this uh, quickly in kind of the two autobiographical statements uh, David cites in this, in this psalm. He says, I have seen and I have not seen. He's talking about as he's looking back on his life here, accounts two things that he has seen and hasn't seen. In verses 25 and 26, he tells us what he's never seen. And that's he's never seen the righteous person abandoned by God. He's never seen his children begging for bread. But in verse 35 and 36, he tells us what he has seen. He's seen, he's seen a wicked, violent person who was flourishing. And there's different people you can think of from David's life that he might even be considering as he writes this. People like Nabal and others. So he's flourishing. But David passes by, and the next thing he knows, he's gone. Right? Thriving, flourishing, looking like he's unbeatable in one moment, the next moment, just gone. Not even there. And again and again, what David wants us to see is that the abundance, even in this life, the abundance of the wicked is something that is fading, flimsy, undesirable, and ready to disappear at any moment. While the little, even the little that the righteous has is secure, it's reliable, it's desirable, and it's ready to increase into the abundance of eternity at any moment. It is always better to be righteous. All right, the final observation I want to quickly make is that in both the present and the future, we see that the wicked are left to themselves, but the righteous have a Savior in the Lord. That is the difference maker. As you go through this psalm, if you take, if you take the Lord out of the psalm, the righteous have nothing, right? It's not better to be righteous than it is to be wicked if you take God out of the picture. If you take God out of Psalm 37, there is no hope. There, there is nothing to trust in, nothing to rejoice in. There is no good coming. But God is in the picture, Right? God does fill Psalm 37, and he is shown to be the savior of his people again and again, both in this life and in death. Verse 39, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. So it's a salvation from the Lord. It's not something that we can obtain for, our, for ourselves or earn for ourselves, achieve for ourselves. It is something that is given by the Lord and, and a gift from the Lord. It's not something that we can earn by our own righteousness or as if we were good enough. No one is righteous in that sense, but Christ alone, as scripture repeatedly says. But as verse 40 ends, it tells us how this comes to the righteous, right? How they receive the salvation, why it is that they receive salvation from the Lord. Very simply, because they take refuge in him. Because they take refuge in him. And that's really all it comes down to in the end. Will you take refuge in the Lord Jesus or will you not? 
Will you, will you look to him and run to him and flee to him for salvation, or will you try to go it on your own? The invitation to all is, come, take refuge in the Lord Jesus. And the categories of the psalm, the righteous and the wicked, are not fixed in set categories. It's not like, all right, you have the, the, the good group, the bad group, and the bad are forever, you know, there's no hope whatsoever. But no, Jesus came to, to save sinners, right? That's the whole point of the gospel. Jesus came to take those who are wicked and bring them into his kingdom and to transfer them from darkness to light and make the unrighteous righteous. And, and for the Christian and for everybody on the planet who is in that category of righteous, it's only because we have fled to Christ, right? It's only because we've gone to him as our refuge. And it's only then that we receive the declaration from God that we are righteous and accepted and forgiven in his presence. And from that, as his spirit comes into our lives, that we actually desire righteousness. We desire to live for God. We desire to see his kingdom come. So all are invited to take refuge in Christ. So take refuge in Jesus. And in doing so, you will receive this gift of salvation that is the greatest gift in the world. So take refuge in the Lord, trust in the Lord, delight in the Lord. And as we have read throughout this psalm, he will never abandon you. He will keep you safe. He will be faithful until we reach that promised land where we'll see his face and be blessed forevermore in his presence. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence to pray as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper as well.